0: Hello everyone. My name is Professor Peter Nash from Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. Welcome to the CSF Rheumatology Author Interview Podcast. Today we are extremely lucky to have uh, be joined by Professor Georg Schett from the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg in Germany. So thank you Professor Schett and welcome and thank you so much for your time in the middle of this difficult period. We'd much rather be seeing you face to face than over the uh, internet. But today we're going to discuss a recently published article by Professor Schett's group in Nature Communications, which looked at COVID-19 infection, particularly in our immune-mediated inflammatory disease patients, and observed a reduced incidence of seroconversion in those patients. So welcome, Georg. Just tell us a little bit about how the COVID epidemic's going in Germany at the moment, cases, lockdown, how it's changed your practice.
1: Thank you, Peter. Very nice to see you. Um, Well, um, um, COVID-19 actually um, hit Germany uh, in uh, in spring, um, starting in mostly March, April, uh, with a strong decrease then in May, and now it's pretty fine. Um, the overall prevalence was much lower than in, in other uh, European countries, for instance, like in Italy, Spain, or in the Netherlands. Um, basically, um, because the lockdown was done very early and uh, quite uh, uh, rigorously, and uh, and therefore um, the the um, there was no increased um, death rate in the in Germany with respect to COVID. So the the usual death rate increases in winter in in all the European countries, mostly because of influenza and other infections, and COVID added to this uh, this year. But uh, in some of the uh, European countries, based of on the mostly probably based on the strict lockdown, uh, this excess death rate didn't happen. So with uh, the the same economic problem we all have, <laughs> but uh, in a way um, uh, the prevalence yeah. of COVID in in Germany was rather low. Yeah.
0: I'm just going to say, have you seen a second wave like we have in Melbourne?
1: Well, there is now a. Um, it's a. I wouldn't say it's a second wave. There are um, very local outbreaks, uh, mostly in slaughterhouses, um, which are owed to the fact that people, after the lockdown, went on holidays, came back, and a single individual is often sufficient in a in a certain environment to infect many others. Slaughterhouses were particularly prone for for outbreaks. Uh, because of the of the of the low temperature and the and the air circulation, uh, so that was that was the there was several outbreaks in slaughterhouses, um, um, basically shutting down them with uh, 50 to 100 cases. So these are very local things. Also, some uh, places in touristic areas, um, small outbreaks. Uh, in hotels, uh, but they had they could be tracked and 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 controlled uh, rather easily. So I wouldn't say it's a second wave. It's not like this kind of big wave we had in uh, in spring. It's a little bit different now. I would say, much more patchy.
0: Okay, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about this study that you you published, and uh, how and why we've been involved with uh, COVID-19 Rheumatology Registry around the world, um, and ULA has one as well. So can you tell us a little bit about that registry and then about this study?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the uh, the registry is, is mostly based to collect uh, COVID cases in patients with rheumatic diseases, uh, um, uh, which is, I think, uh, a very important um, uh, um endeavor uh, in a way to learn whether the COVID cases um, are different in patients with rheumatic disease, especially uh, due to the therapy. Um, meanwhile, there are a few good publications from Italy um, and also from New York by um, Jose Cher, for instance, uh, showing very nicely and also a few um, good studies from China with respect to Crohn's disease. Um, that uh, that there is no um, change, no more severe course of COVID in uh, patients with autoimmune diseases, mostly data on Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis, which I think is very important um, because originally people thought that uh, these people are, are, are a risk population and um, and they would have probably a more severe course. And all the studies so far didn't show that, which is very reassuring, I would say, um, as said, these are studies collecting COVID cases in uh, with, a, with a background uh, of autoimmune disease.
0: So can you just update us on which cytokines are involved in COVID infection? Um, and then we'll talk about the study itself.
1: Yeah, so the, what is thought that COVID, as you, as you know, um, is, is infecting um, alveolar cells type 2 um, uh, with ha- uh, having the, uh, the ACE2. Uh, receptor and also um, gastrointestinal epithelial cells having the ACE2 receptor, and after viral entry, and that is um, that's similar with uh, SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2, there is a uh, a production of um, of cytokines, mostly innate cytokines, by the epithelial cells, leading to a uh, to the attraction of neutrophils and macrophages into the alveolar membrane. Um, so there is IL-1, TNF, and IL-6 involved. And uh, the influx of neutrophils and macrophages um, is, uh, is actually the problem often of severe COVID because it is, uh, leads to clotting of the alveolar membrane and therefore a, a respiratory insufficiency. Uh, at the same time, there are cytokines activated which are helped in, uh, which are involved in viral clearance, for instance, interference as well.
0: Okay, so tell us about the study, how you went about it and where you got the patients from.
1: Yeah, so what we did is uh, we, we started quite early the, uh, in the year to, uh, to do antibody tests um, in, in patients with, uh, with uh, immune mediated inflammatory diseases. So we teamed up with the gastroenterologist and the dermatologist um, <coughs> with respect to Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, uh, psoriasis, and then from our side, rheumatoid and spondyloarthritis, and collected actually all the patients are uh, uh, taking cytokine inhibitors, uh, so they were about 400. And then we collected patients uh, who were not on cytokine inhibitors, which were on classical therapy, like azathioprine uh, in, in in gastroenterology, mitotrexate in, in, in rheumatology, and uh, in dermatology also re- uh, mostly mitotrexate. And uh, then we had some control populations, which were a two con- predominantly two control populations. One was a control population of the normal individuals. So we had a collective cohort of, uh, uh, of of healthy individuals which from the same region. And we had a cohort of hospital employees or, or employees in healthcare, which is not only hospital, but private practices uh, all around. So these we compared basically the, the zero prevalence um, In these four populations, and also compared exposure to infections, and we compared also symptoms. Yeah. Um, So, bottom line, what was quite interesting: first prevalence of um, of 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 infection with um, uh, the new coronavirus in Germany, our region, was 2.2 percent. So this is rather low, yeah. And uh, when you compare, it's in Austria about five percent. It's in in the Switzerland in Geneva, it's about ten percent. And in high-risk areas, um, um, for instance, in in Ischgl, which is a ski resort, or in New York, uh, it's about forty percent zero prevalence. So so overall, the zero prevalence in in Germany is uh, uh, and Bavaria was the most hit area is only two point two percent. Uh, when you look at hospital employees and private people in healthcare, it's doubled, yeah? it's 4%. Four, four, four and that's mostly due to a higher exposure rate. Yeah? So when you ask the people, they have a higher exposure to people who got infected, which is logical. So in a way, hospital or healthcare employees are a certain risk population to have a higher prevalence of COVID or, or a coronavirus infection. What was quite interesting, that, um, and that was actually the, 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 the in most interesting part of the study, that people with uh, taking cytokine inhibitors had a prevalence of less than 1%. Um, and that was quite interesting. You could say, well, they are scared. They don't uh, expose themselves to others, and they lock themselves at home. But we actually carefully looked at that, and that was not the case. They were not more locked than others. Yeah? So the pure uh, uh, lower exposure, we don't think is a good explanation what we think is that they they have you know when you have a, a, a virus or any any infection you have an out, you have an adjuvant effect by the inflammation so that creates symptoms but it also creates antibodies Yeah, like in vaccination and what happens when you take such drugs that you blunt that that response so you get less less uh, symptoms and you get actually uh, no antibodies so i don't think that we don't think that the cytokine inhibitors block viral entry yeah that would be odd but they, I think what they do is they block the inflammatory response to the, to the virus up front yeah, because it's an exposed individual already, uh, right. a inhibitory exposed individual, but the virus comes in. So that's, a, that's our most likely explanation for it.
0: Right. And look, we're used to PCR tests to diagnose this virus. Tell us a little bit about this um, antibody test, cross-reactivity, robustness of that test, um, and whether it tells us about infection or colonization or, or just what?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I would say an antibody test is like with any other uh, micro uh, uh, microorganism. It tells that the... The, the the host has been exposed to a certain microorganism, and the microorganism could trigger an immune response. I would think it's more than just colonization, because you would need to actually expose the immune system to it. So I think it's uh, it's in a you. I would say it's an infection, but infection could of course also uh, be without any any symptoms, uh, as we know. Um, so that's part one. Part two is there is always the, the discussion how much uh, there is cross-reactivity reactivity with the human endemic coronaviruses, which are mostly making mild infection in young individuals uh, and are basically there every year. Uh, So um, there is very little cross-reactivity, I have to say, because we did actually, uh, we also cross-tested serum samples from such individuals from uh, 2019, where there was no SARS-CoV-2 here in Germany probably not all, all over the world there was no sars cov 2 and they were showing a very different pattern yeah so so we are quite comfortable to say that the the antibody test uh, really picks up sars cov 2 it would also pick sa- up sars cov 1 but sars cov 1 is gone since about 14 years and was it was not prevalent in 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 germany at all just in canada and in in the in, in asia so we are pretty comfortable that we measure, really, the, the, the right stuff. Um, I, would, I should also mention, Peter, is the, the fact that we have a COVID prevalence here in Bavaria of 0.3%. That means 0.3% of the population walked into the doctor, got a swap, were positive for RNA of SARS-CoV-2 and had symptoms. And that's 10 times lower than the antibody uh, prevalence. So that means that 9 out of 10 individuals, they don't have much symptoms, don't even realize that they got coronavirus infection. It's quite interesting and fits very much to Swiss data, where they showed actually that they have 1% prevalence of, of COVID-19 and about 10% antibody positivity. So it's 1 to 10 in a and, way.
0: And that goes with, of your positives, 13% went on to have a positive diagnosis of covid. So by far being asymptomatic is much more common.
1: Much more common and we also tested how many actually of our tested got a diagnosis of covid during the study and there were actually it's a, it's one out of 10. Yeah so it's a, it's quite interesting that we underestimate by RNA testing, yeah? we underestimate the prevalence of the disease because it's, it's only a short time when you are RNA positive, whereas you have a, it's like an HbA1c when you take the antibody test, yeah? what happened yeah, the last time, there a while. Yeah.
0: Why do you think they've had so much trouble proving tocilizumab, cerilumab is effective then? Mm-hmm. I recently, anakinra came up well they've had real trouble proving that anti cytokine therapy is effective in either prevention or treatment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I just saw the negative outcome of the tocilizumab study if I'm uh, uh, not completely incorrect uh, yesterday or a few days ago. And uh, that was, I would say, surprising uh, because most of the people thought that it would help. Um, I think the challenge is always uh, when to start such a treatment. Usually, if you start it in a in a rather later setting, maybe you cannot reverse that easily. Uh, so I think uh, there's still some work to do. I think, but but I think the challenge is always when to when to start a cytokine therapy then an anti-cytokine therapy that it would be effective. Yeah. So that is I think the always the the, the big problem is all sepsis things, and uh, in a way uh, it seems that SARS-CoV-2 is not ex- not very different. Yeah. But what I also think what we have learned by these studies is one part we we give tozilizumab or other drugs in a severe infection <laughs> for treatment yeah and I think that's very, it's very courageous you know and, uh, and as uh, as we as rheumatologists we're always always scared by infections so now the people change their mind completely and give it in severe infection and that's amazing so what it tells us I mean. When somebody ha- with a rheumatic disease, up has a, a coronavirus infection, we probably don't even stop because it's not adverse. I mean, the studies showed even a, a little benefit; it didn't make the primary endpoint, <laughs> but it didn't actually kill the people. So it's it's quite. I mean, it's a it's a really a reset in our mind, and I think what what it shows that. The cytokine inhibitors they, 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 they foster a certain infection profile. Yeah, we know with 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 uh, secukinumab, IL seven inhibition, it's, it's, it's candida. With TNF, it's TB. Um, with probably with IL six inhibitors, some bacterial infections. But it's not actually a respiratory viral infection, which is I think uh, which is very interesting. And and I think that's a a strong uh, learning curve in this half year, what happened, how we interpret infection risk with anti inhibitors.
0: Well, I must say, I've discussed this with Kevin Winthrop, an ID physician in Portland, yeah. where he says he's surprised how few of our patients are winding up with COVID infection that he has to look after, which fits with what you've found. Um, do you think the JAK inhibitors are different? They're talking about interferon as a therapy, if anything is going to promote viral infection, the JAKs should. There's talk of Barry as a treatment. How do you think we should treat the JAK inhibitors in the COVID situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's always, always been little <coughs> more concern with JAK inhibitors because they also have a strong inhibition of interferons, as you know. And the other part is that it's the only uh, drug where you see a clear signal with reactivation of virus, Yeah, with uh, herpes virus. Uh, which is a different it's a very different thing. Uh, so so there was there was a there's there's been probably at the beginning more concerned with Jack inhibitors. But we don't there are no really data that that Jack inhibitors would actually change the course of the disease uh, uh, of COVID so in, in pre-treated patients from the registers. That's number one. In our study, we had also substantial numbers of JAK inhibitor-treated patients. We didn't see that they behave differently from the cytokine inhibitors. Uh, so that's also reassuring. And as far as I know, there are JAK inhibitor studies ongoing in, in, in COVID, right? And um, I don't know about the outcome, but at least that they have considered to do that is, is a, is a I would say, it's a, it's a courageous endeavor, but it may be also correct to do it because uh, it is a, it's a strong inhibition of IL-6 uh, which um, and also the GMCSF component, which uh, has also been shown to be important in COVID. Uh, so that might, the inhibition of innate immunity might have an effect. Yeah? But we have to wait. I mean, we don't know about it. So I wouldn't be that stressed with the JAK inhibitors at the moment. But, of course, we need more data, as you know. So that's, that's a very preliminary um, thing.
0: <laughs> All right. So... Tell us a little bit about the prospects of a vaccine. If you get immunity, how long might it last? And then do you think there are mutations in this virus that mean a vaccine is going to be difficult?
1: yeah but it's very difficult uh, to say to predict that i mean there, there's a huge effort to to make a vaccine uh, which is logic because the economic impact of this virus is unprecedented yeah uh, and uh, and and of course i mean um the vaccine would be the best option to control the virus in the long run um, first i think it's it's, it's it's the good thing is it's very clear that the, the spike one protein is the is a key antigenic part because most of the immune reaction is against the spike one, which I think is, is, is a very logical thing. So, the vaccine will be based on that uh, and, uh, and there will be many vaccines coming up. So, the, the key question, what we can't answer at the moment is, do you get enough neutralizing antibodies, number one, and how long do the antibodies last? Uh, uh, so, I think at the moment there are no answers on that. For the, the, the duration of antibodies, um, I would be very skeptical that uh, we would have a very long duration of antibodies. Why I say that? Because the very, I think the, the key, there are two data sets which are important. Uh, one data set is from SARS-CoV-1, where uh, the virus 50 15 years ago. When they retested over the time the antibodies, uh, most of the antibodies are gone after, um, in, in most of the which are gone after five years. So, so it's not like measles where you get one shot and you're you're, you're fine for your life. That's very un- unlikely because usually a vaccine does not make the same strong immune reaction than the viral infection. So one would assume that if you you vaccinate, that you would get probably neutralizing antibody at best, but then they would fade away after. Let's say maybe two years. Nobody knows that, yeah. So that would mean that you can overcome with a, with a yearly with a yearly uh, vaccination. Yeah, that sure. yeah. that would be possible because we do that with influenza based on mutation. Also, the, and the second data set is the, the Chinese data set that they looked at SARS-CoV-2 antibodies over time, and many people actually lost the the, the, the antibody response. So, so I think it's a it's a it's a non permanent antibody. Uh, immunity, uh, so so you can get reinfected probably when you lose the immunity, and uh, that has to be that will I think that has to be addressed in vaccination studies at the end. Yeah, and uh, the other part is yeah hopefully you get neutralizing antibodies and nobody knows that for sure. I mean the first data look quite positive, um, so let's hope that this will. I mean it's a really important program and um, I think the whole world hopes that this will this will work somehow. Yeah.
0: Excellent. So, to finish, just a take-home message for the clinicians from the study that you published.
1: Yeah, well, don't worry about um, the coronavirus. Uh, continue treatment. Uh, I mean, that's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a very important message because when we started here, I mean, we got so many people who were completely worried to stop the treatment, and uh, because they are at risk, and uh, we were. We didn't know at the beginning. Honestly, we didn't know. So now, after all these data, we can be—it's very reassuring—that we should not say, "Don't, don't stop the treatment. Yeah, uh, continue the treatment." And if you have the infection, it's an individual decision. Uh, but, but I think uh, uh, we, what we, what the message is, we, we should, we should uh, um, put out the stress of our patient that they are at particular risk for disinfection. For and I think that's the most important message.
0: Thank you very much. Look, we thank you again for your time, Professor Shett. This has been the CSF Author Interview Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and let us know what you think with some feedback. Thank you so much for your time.